This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Are you driving one of the vehicles on the list of top 10 most stolen cars? According to Toronto Police data here in Toronto this year, the most targeted vehicle types have been Honda CRVs and the Lexus RX350. And making matters worse, car thefts are on the rise across the GTA. This past year in the city of Toronto, there were as many as 6,000 car thefts, a 10% increase compared with 2020. Peel Region has had 3,600 car thefts this year, and York Region has had more than 2,000. Other vehicles with a high target rate, according to insurance data, are the Ford F-150, F-250, F-350, F-450 series, the Honda Civic series, and the Toyota Corolla series. So what is it about these vehicles that make them an excellent target? And what are some useful tips for car owners? Libby asked these questions of Detective Rommel Dimitulak with the York Regional Police Auto Cargo Theft Unit and Organized Crime Enforcement Bureau, and Elliot Silverstein, Director of Government Relations with CAA Insurance. You know, it's been a challenge for many years, and I think we've been hearing about thefts for for a long time, and I think the numbers right now are staggering. I think people are at home. I think at times, you know, people tend to, to, you know, leave their cars outside. They may not put them in the garage uh, as much as they otherwise would. I think now with winter weather, there may be another opportunity, but... uh, um, it's, beca- it's become a challenge, and it's an increasing challenge. And, Detective, I mean, we keep hearing about more and more sophisticated methods that these car thieves can start the car without a key, you know, completely remotely. I know that we heard, well, if you put your car key in a metal cup, that will prevent them from doing that. But I think they've circumvented even that. Yeah, over time they've uh, learned the processes of, in which we are trying to combat the auto theft. So they are adapting and changing their techniques to um, overcome that. And at times they are successful. Okay, well, so Elliot, why do you think those models are so popular? We've got uh, the Lexus, which is a Toyota luxury brand, and, and also Honda CRVs. Why them? You know, some of them have been on the list for many years, and some have different values in, a, in other parts of the world. I think, you know, really what it comes down to is that these are the ones that are really the ones that are taken most frequently, but it, it also underscores the importance that regardless of the type of model or brand that you have, you need to take precautions because, um, you know, it does happen to other vehicles. So these may be the ones that are most common and, and have uh, value elsewhere in the world. But people need to make the, 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 the right choices to take the, the time to protect their uh, car proactively. Okay. And, Detective, uh, what are you telling people to do to protect their car? Well, the number one thing that we suggest is to, if you can, park your vehicle in the garage. Once it's inside your garage, it's very difficult for the auto thieves to one. Uh, gain access to it, and uh, these thieves usually uh, conduct um, 
surveillance throughout neighborhoods. And when they see a car, they'll uh, tend to, they have a tendency to return back in the neighborhood uh, to steal it at, a, at an opportune time. So parking the car is the number one thing uh, uh, we suggest in the garage. Uh, the number two thing is uh, the uh, steering wheel uh, locking mechanism, such as the club. Um, it prevents an auto thief from taking the time to steal your car. Uh, and when they see that in there, it, it, it's a deterrent. So what we're trying to, to do is deter the thieves from actually stealing the vehicle from the driveway. Uh, there's other suggestions that we, we recommend is if you can't park the car in the garage, uh, some some neighborhoods you can't. But if well, you have some another, of us don't have garages. <laughs> right. But if you have a secondary vehicle and park the vehicle behind, uh, right up to that car, so it makes it more difficult for the thieves to uh, entry, uh, gain access to the vehicle, and then the re- reverse the vehicle or drive the vehicle out of the driveway. Hmm. So you mean park the more desirable vehicle first? Well, park, yeah, that's correct. Park, park, like if the identified vehicles is what uh, they're after, the vehicle that they may not want, it, park that behind that vehicle, make it more difficult for them to steal. Detective Ramel Dimatulak with the York Regional Police Auto Cargo Theft Unit and Organized Crime Enforcement Bureau, and Elliot Silverstein, Director of Government Relations with CAA Insurance. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. There was a collective feeling of concern in Toronto when we learned on Tuesday that Dr. Eileen Davila would be undergoing surgery the next day to remove precancerous cells that were detected during the summer in a routine mammogram. As Toronto's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Davila has been one of the busiest and most visible public leaders throughout the pandemic, and her diagnosis is unsettling, but maybe not a surprise. She herself says her story is not unique, and women throughout Toronto receive news like this every day. On the day of Dr. Davila's surgery, Libby was joined by a panel to discuss the diagnosis, which is DCIS, a condition where the cancer cells are in the milk ducts and have not invaded the breast to be full-blown breast cancer. Dr. Martin Yaffe is a breast cancer researcher at Sunnybrook Research Institute, and Dr. Eileen Rakovich is a radiation oncologist and researcher at Sunnybrook. First, though, City Councillor Jay Robinson, who has recently come through her own breast cancer treatment. I'm doing really well. Uh, actually, I have to disclose that Dr. Rakovich was actually one of my three doctors. Okay, uh, you got a good doctor there. <laughs> I was a very lucky person. She's phenomenal, and I think, Libby, you and I would both agree, we are not talking about this enough. These are the real everyday heroes in uh, Toronto that are saving people's lives, and she is just this phenomenal doctor. I can't say enough about her, and she's just the head of the Breast Centre, now the head of Odette at Sunnybrook, and I'm just thrilled to be on, on the line with her, but... Thank you for asking me. I'm doing well. um, But, you know, as we both know, Libby, one out of eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. So in some ways it's shocking. In other ways it's not because one out of eight women. And uh, we're just heartbroken at City Hall to hear this news. She's worked so hard through the pandemic 
leading the charge, making bold decisions, very difficult decisions that a lot of people didn't like. Um, and here she is with this diagnosis. So oh, our hearts are all with her today as she goes through surgery. And we're thinking about her hour by hour. Dr. Rakovich, you know, I haven't talked to you for a long time, but I remember the last time I talked to you, you were about to start some research on this condition, which is known as ductal carcinoma in situ. And yes. it's the weird thing about it. It's, it's not cancer yet. And, uh, you know, some of it could go on to become invasive breast cancer and some of it won't. But at that point, the problem was that you didn't know which was which. DCIS is precancerous. It is highly curable. And in some cases, it is the beginning to develop into invasive breast cancer. I think this is also very important to remind women to go for screening, that it is safe now. There was a lot of hesitancy and concern with regards to COVID, and Martin can speak more to that. But we know that by screening, it's our best um, capability to find breast cancer early. And DCIS is a very early form. It's precancerous. But Libby, as you said, and you have a good memory, years ago, the key and a lot of the research, our own research program as well as others, are really trying to understand which DCIS lesions truly are going to develop into invasive cancer so that we know which individuals require treatment to prevent breast cancer and which DCIS lesions are not, which ones have a more indolent course are not going to develop so that we can reduce what is referred to as over-treatment or unnecessary treatment. And that really depends on the research that our team and others are doing to distinguish the pre truly precancerous DCIS lesions from those that have a more benign outlook. Dr. Yaffe, so have you figured that out or has it been figured out somewhat or is it still a matter where you treat it all because you just don't know? Well, I think in many cases that's what, what happens, uh, is, is what's happening, but I think uh, Dr. Rakovich's work, and she's not only an outstanding doctor but also an outstanding researcher, is looking at how you can try to separate those ductal carcinomas that are going to be dangerous from, you know, the sleepier ones that really aren't going to do any harm long term. And I think that's really the, the key to the future is to try to do that separation so that women can be treated more appropriately in each case. Dr. Martin Yaffe, breast cancer researcher at Sunnybrook Research Institute. Dr. Eileen Rakovich, radiation oncologist and researcher at Sunnybrook. And Toronto City Councillor Jay Robinson. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, short-term pain for long-term gain. Construction of the Ontario subway line is soon to begin. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. 
Are you ready for seven years of road closures and even more traffic congestion in the downtown core? We're being told by Mayor John Tory that the hardship is for the greater good, since by the end of that seven years, the Ontario subway line will be complete. In essence, short-term pain for long-term gain. A city staff report approved this past week by the mayor's executive committee indicates that the largest disruption to traffic will be around the creation of the new Queen Station. And that would result in complete road closures on Queen Street between Bay and Victoria. Queen Street has already closed in recent weeks in various spots for TTC streetcar work. And additional closures that pop up, say, in the entertainment district, in addition to the Queen closure between Spadina and Niagara, can sometimes make it nearly impossible to get from point A to point B if you're driving. Joining Libby on Thursday to talk about our current and future traffic closures, Jonathan English, Director of Policy, Transportation and Infrastructure with the Toronto Region Board of Trade. Mark Garner, Chief Operating Officer and Executive Director of the Downtown Young BIA. Toronto City Councillor James Pasternak for Ward 6 York Centre, also a member of the Executive Committee. And City Councillor Stephen Holliday for Ward 2 Etobicoke Centre. Yeah, this is a conversation I have very often with my constituents. Look, we're out here in the West End, and feeling attached to our city is really important. But I keep hearing the message over and over again, you know, Councillor, I I don't like going there anymore. It's too hard. It's too much effort. There's too much congestion. And uh, people have seen me do some pretty dramatic things at Council and and fight things where people would say, you know, Councillor, why are you opposed to all these bike lanes and all these different initiatives like closing down King Street? It's for that exact reason. It's about access. And I worry about the downtown over the long term. Uh, the, the pandemic has been particularly harsh. Just take a walk through the path system and you'll find it's virtually empty and it's, it's got to be a concern. And so, yes, construction is going to happen. A new subway is really important. But my big criticism on all this is that council sure has been working real hard to make it difficult to get into downtown right up until now with all these initiatives. And this will be just the, the top crown jewel here with the construction that's really going to scare people away. And I worry about that. I think that's a shame for our city. And, uh, you know, I think we can do better. But uh, I think we need to be cognizant of all this construction when we make these decisions on, on more and more bike lanes. I'm looking at the report right in front of me right now to talk about Young Street as one of them. Let's bring in Councillor Pasternak. Yeah, so there's no doubt that street uh, closures at this level, uh, this draconian, is frustrating, it's disturbing, the construction is messy, it's noisy. And as we all agree, it's going to take a long time. But these closures are linked closely to the investment in high-level transit. And Toronto, to many, is about 30 years behind in its transit building. And because of that delay, a lot of density and increased uh, building uh, occurred in the places where you would build high-level transit. So now we have to fit in these narrow corridors to build this transit when everything is built up around it. So after asking for this kind of investment for decades, Toronto is finally getting it. Mark Garner, from your perspective, how is this all affecting uh, your members? Well, Libby, I think the questions you raised and listening to the councillors as well, we don't know the impact as of yet. We've we've done, our BIA had worked with economic development in the city of Toronto in regards to the impact 
of the uh, Eglinton work that uh, has impacted, obviously, Little Jamaica and the other neighborhoods across there. So we understand what worked, what didn't work, and the impacts on business. This, obviously, I think we all agree, this infrastructure has been needed for many years, tens, twenties of years, and now we're confronted with we have to do it now. So really the question, Libby, is how do we mitigate it? I mean, there's a lot of work, and I hope council and these councillors specifically, Councillor Holiday and obviously Pasternak, that when they're discussing the issue, make sure that, to Libby's point, you know, there's just ongoing work that pops up on Queen Street, on Adelaide, on Richmond any given day, that when this hole gets dug for seven years at Young and uh, Queen Street, that we don't have any other construction on Victoria Street. We don't have any other construction on Church. We don't have any other construction on Shooter. We have to be more coordinated to be able to mitigate the issues that are going to impact on the street-level experience. We have Jonathan English back from the Board of Trade. Hi, Jonathan. Are you there? Hi there. Great to hear from you. <laughs> uh, so what's your take? How is this going to impact the business community? Well, you know, on the ground, of course, there's no question that, uh, you know, these kinds of disruptions are really tough for businesses in the local area. And obviously, they've been hard hit by the by the pandemic already. But I think we have to put into perspective that this is this is a really important city priority. Um, you know, the city has identified this as a, as a top priority for several years. Jonathan English, Director of Policy, Transportation and Infrastructure with the Toronto Region Board of Trade. Mark Garner, Chief Operating Officer and Executive Director of the Downtown Young BIA and Toronto City Councillors James Pasternak and Stephen Holliday. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Also on Thursday, Fight Back included a segment on leprosy, a disease that most of us would have thought had been eradicated long ago. That is not the case. As many as 1.7 billion people worldwide are affected by neglected tropical diseases like leprosy. Libby was joined by Kim Evans, CEO of Effect Hope, the Leprosy Mission of Canada. Uh, So the countries where the most leprosy is, um, is India, Brazil, and Indonesia. But typically um, in the tropics and in um, what I would call poorer countries where, where they don't have good health systems, they don't have good sanitation systems, those kinds of countries would be where, where it would be the most prevalent. Mm-hmm. And who are the people? Is it mostly people who are poor? I would say uh, 99% of them are really impoverished people and some of the world's most poor people, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And how do you get leprosy? So leprosy, uh, a bit like COVID, is is uh, passed by little droplets that people sort of spew out when they talk or when they sneeze. But it's a very slow growing, unlike COVID, which is a 14-day incubation period, leprosy could incubate for years and then materialize. And what are the manifestations? It's manifestations on your skin. It sort of almost can eat away at your face, I think. Absolutely. So the manifestations can certainly be on the skin. It is a nerve disease, so it attacks the nerves. But what happens when it attacks the nerves is that the skin or the touch, there's no sense of feeling. So often the manifestations in your face or in your hands or your feet some of the injuries are just simply caused because you don't feel pain. And so, you know, you and I, 
if we go to touch something that's hot, we we come right back from it because we we know that and we sense pain. Uh, people who are suffering with leprosy often do not experience that kind of pain, and so um, they end up injuring themselves. Now, I remember from studying the Bible as a little girl that what they did with people with leprosy in those times was they sort of uh, put them outside the camp. So what happens to poor people who contract the disease now? Well, so if they are diagnosed, there is a cure. There is a cure. It's um, basically an antibiotic that you take for uh, a year, up to a year. Um, with a, a complete cure. But what happens for lots of folks um, still today is that there is a discrimination by others who are afraid of leprosy. They've read the same stuff in the Bible that you read, and they're, um, they're concerned that the person perhaps is cursed. Uh, they're afraid of catching it, which is highly unlikely. Um, and so often these folks are discriminated against. There's a, a lot of stigma attached to this disease. Well, and it's, um, there's, you know, the concept of being treated like a leper, right? It's in our language. It's exactly right. And in fact, we don't use that word because that, that just equates the, the person with the disease, which is part of the issue. So we, we talk about people who are affected by leprosy because they're, they're human beings. They're, uh, they're good people. They're hardworking people. They're, they're parents and children of, of other people. Um, and so we try to steer away from that terminology, but it's still there. And uh, that's one of the things that we're fighting against. Kim Evans, CEO of Effect Hope, the Leprosy Mission of Canada. To support the cause and for more information, go online to effecthope.org. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Sheila in Toronto phoned about a breast cancer diagnosis in her family. In 2009, my mother was 87 years old, and she was recommended for a mammogram, had it. They did surgery and removed a very tiny lump. She had radiation and coped well with that. She went for a walk every day after radiation, and uh, she died in 2018 when she was 96. Wow. And it was her heart that gave out. There was no more trace of cancer after the, uh, the age of 87. So it can be worth having the mammogram in your senior years. Carl in Keswick called during our segment on stolen vehicles with some advice. Uh, I have a 2019 Toyota Highlander. Uh, what I do is I obliterate the VIN number with a long envelope. This is very easily done. It's only accessible um, to mechanics if they remove the envelope. Secondly, the key fob 
can be disabled. I do this by pressing and holding the lock button and then press the unlock button twice. This disables the key fob and you cannot enter the car until such, at such time as you uh, press the unlock button. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Daryl in Toronto, who phoned about the seven years of traffic closures we've been told to expect for the building of the Ontario subway line. I just wanted to throw into the mix of this conversation. I found a card a little while ago going through some papers. I think the card was from Mike Cole about 10 years ago talking about the Eglinton LRT. And I'm pretty sure it said on there that it would be up and running by 2016. (laughs) I don't know if I'd get too hung up on this seven-year number. Once you put it into metric, it, it could be anything. Um, and I'm just, uh, I thought you, your people might be able to do a little research and figure out the last few projects, uh, like the one going up to Vaughn and that, and how they never in the time frame that uh, they say, and it goes years and years over. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fightback. The best of Fightback is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeeb Hadi. With technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.